This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Radicular leg pain can be really frustrating. There are a variety of musculoskeletal disorders that can produce it, and pinning down a specific cause for the symptoms can be extremely challenging. Lumbar radiculopathy, trochanteric bursitis, sciatica, hip arthritis, just a few conditions we need to consider. So to help us through this difficult terrain, we have with us today Dr. Jonathan Finoff, a physiatrist and sports medicine physician in the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at the Mayo Clinic. John, thanks for being here today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Well, John, I want to try a different type of podcast today. Normally, I just ask questions to our guests, but I would like to run through a case. This is a real case with you, and then ask your comments along the way. That sounds good to me. All right. So the patient is a 60-year-old male, and he's actually a physician here at Mayo, and he developed right radicular leg pain. The only significant past medical history is that he had a left cervical radiculopathy, which resolved with conservative treatment. And this occurred several years prior to this uh, episode of right radicular leg pain. So his symptoms developed after he started increasing use of his treadmill from 30 to 60 minutes per day. And after about six months of these symptoms, he presented to orthopedics. uh, And he had actually done some research on his symptoms, and he thought... uh, he had piriformis syndrome, so that's what he went into orthopedics with. So, John, what is piriformis syndrome, and how does it present? So, there, the piriformis muscle can cause pain uh, locally, or it can be a syndrome where it's actually compressing the sciatic nerve and causing pain radiating down the leg and neurologic symptoms. And so uh, standard piriformis myofascial pain will be a deep, aching buttock pain, Often it happens when you're doing transitions of movement from sitting to standing. It can hurt with prolonged walking. And it's really annoying for patients, but it's not associated with any numbness or tingling. They'll often hurt with direct pressure in the area or either activating or stretching that piriformis muscle. Whereas piriformis syndrome uh, can either be from the nerve passing underneath a tight piriformis, so it gets pushed on, or possibly the nerve piercing through the piriformis and getting entrapped within the muscle itself or compressed by a fibrous band within the muscle. And so those people will have that buttock pain, but also the typical sciatica um, that would mimic a radiculopathy. Um, But it would be brought on by similar things to what I talked about with piriformis syndrome before as opposed to radiculopathy, which is brought on more with sitting. Okay. Well, this patient described right gluteal pain radiating into the right posterior and lateral thigh and actually down into the calf. And the uh, gluteal pain was present primarily with walking and with sitting. Uh, The pain was improved by shifting positions while sitting and or standing with the right leg in somewhat of an external rotation. There was no back pain, no lower extremity weakness, no paresthesias, no change in bowel or bladder dysfunction. Uh, Exam, spine inspection, and palpation normal, range of motion in the lower extremities normal, strength lower extremities and gait was normal, uh, deep tendon reflexes equal and symmetric in lower extremities, plantar reflex downgoing bilaterally, 
Uh, sensation to light touch was normal. Straight leg raising 90 degrees bilaterally. Uh, the patient did demonstrate some discomfort with extreme lumbar flexion. So the impression of the orthopedist was, nope, this is not piriformis syndrome. You've got a lumbar radiculitis and right sciatica. So, John, what is sciatica? Well, sciatica is just a descriptive term of any pain that radiates down the leg, and it doesn't necessarily tell you where that pain is coming from. Um, so sciatica absolutely can be caused by a radiculopathy, so it could be a herniated disc or a facet arthropathy that causes neurofrominal stenosis and causes radiculopathy, or it can be central canal stenosis that can cause multiple different nerve roots to be compressed. Um, but it also can be from entrapment of a nerve distal to that area, so in the buttock region, just like we talked about with piriformis syndrome. That will cause very similar symptoms radiating down the leg. Um, but each of these do have some different, different characteristics. Uh, you can have a normal neurologic examination with any of these, but most of them, if you have nerve involvement, it's irritated, it's a radiculitis, um, then they'll usually have a positive slump test. And so that's one of the things that I'll often do, and it's just one of the different uh, dural tension tests you have them sitting on an examination table. They put their hands behind their back. They slump down through their trunk and tuck their chin down to their chest. And while they're in that position, uh, you straighten out the leg on the side of, of their symptoms. So they're, if they're in a seated position initially, then their knees are bent at 90 degrees, but you start to straighten that knee, and they'll start having their radicular symptoms radiating down into the leg. And then you have them tip their head back, while keeping everything else in the exact same position. So you're not, you're not changing their hamstring tension. You're not changing their back. You're just tipping their head back. And if their symptoms go away, then that's suggestive that within their nerve system, they have irritation of the nerves going down into their legs. And so I use that as a sensitive test for uh, any type of um, pinched nerve, whether it's in the buttock area or in the back. Um, and then I, you know, I would I would uh, talk to them about their history, and I would with the physical examination, typically with a disc problem, they're going to hurt when they lean forward and try to touch their toes. So flexion based or with sitting, uh, they'll feel better with extension. But usually they're not going to hurt when you palpate their piriformis. They're not going to hurt when you stretch their piriformis, uh, which would be um, pulling their hip uh, into an internally rotated position. Mm -hmm or uh, when they activate it. So one of the things that we do to activate it is have people get into a quadruped position and then lift up their leg like their, their dog, you know, urinating right. on a fire hydrant, the fire hydrant test, and then pushing down on their leg and having them resist. And so if they have pain with that and deep palpation in the piriformis and they have a positive dural tension test, then I'd, I'd be thinking piriformis is one of the potential issues. Okay. I would still image their back because I'd want to rule out a more common cause, which is a radiculopathy. All right. And that was done. A lumbar spine x-ray was performed, and it showed subtle narrowing of the L4 interspace, degenerative arthritic changes of the lumbar facet joints, and some degenerative changes at the lumbar sacral interspace. Um, I think of facet arthritis as a cause for localized low back pain, but you kind of inferred that that can cause some radicular symptoms too. Is that right? 
Yeah, and the reason is if you have facet arthropathy, that is typically going to cause low back and buttock pain, sometimes radiating to the posterior thigh, but rarely to below the knee. And it's usually more extension-based. And we'll do a maneuvers like a facet loading maneuver where you'll extend uh, them, side them towards the side bend them towards the side of their pain, and then rotate them in the contralateral direction. And all those things are going to load their facet joint, and that will cause pain. But if you get uh, a lot of facet arthropathy, um, and you get a lot of hypertrophy and bone spurs in that area, so osteophytes and stuff, then that can encroach upon the neuroforamen that's adjacent to it and cause neuroforaminal stenosis. And so, yeah, it can cause radiculopathy, but that's a secondary issue. Okay. Well, additional imaging was done. An MRI of the lumbar spine was performed. No evidence for spinal stenosis. The uh, interspaces between L1 and L2, L2 and L3 were all negative. L3 to L4, there was mild facet arthropathy. L4 to L5, mild diffuse bulge and facet arthropathy. And L5 to S1, spondylosis with interspace narrowing and disc bulging. And both foramina at that interspace were narrowly, uh, moderately narrowed. Is this MRI, does that give you the answer? Well, it would suggest, you know, that possibly this is an L5 radiculopathy. If you have bilateral moderate moderately severe spinal stenosis um, and you have radicular symptoms into, into the leg, um, then I would, that would probably be one of the top differential, uh, on, my, on the top of my differential diagnosis would be radiculopathy. And you could do an epidural injection and if that alleviated their symptoms dramatically during the anesthetic phase of the epidural, then diagnostically that would confirm that's the location of the pain. Whereas if they didn't have any diagnostic benefits so during the local anesthetic phase and they didn't get any therapeutic benefits, then, then that's not the cause and you'd start looking at other potential causes. All right. Well, the plan here was to start physical therapy, working on core stability and increase the lower back and lower extremity flexibility, and that was done. Uh, a month passes, patient returns to orthopedics for recheck, no improvement. Right gluteal pain was probably even a bit worse. Uh, the patient was now using a pillow, sitting on his office chair and uh, when riding in a car. He described worsening the pain with uh, coughing or bending. And the decision was then to ask neurosurgery to look at this situation uh, for question of lumbosacral nerve root compression. So how does a lumbar radiculopathy present? Is this consistent with that? You know, some things. Essentially... And by the way, uh, there's no doubt that I would have tried physical therapy before I did an epidural injection. So I, I think that they did the right course of treatment. One of the issues is there are a lot of different causes of radiculopathy. It can be from neuroforaminal stenosis, which would potentially be the case in this individual, or it can be from a disc herniation. And they cause radiculopathy, which feels the same, but it, it, it is provoked by totally different things. So with neuroforaminal stenosis, it's going to have neurogenic claudication types of uh, provocative maneuvers. So it will hurt worse typically with walking. It'll hurt worse walking downhill than uphill. It won't have any symptoms in a seated position. It'll feel better in a seated position. So flexion opens up that area. Whereas a radiculopathy from a disc herniation, they're going to hurt more with sitting and with flexion. They're going to feel better when they stand up. 
sometimes movement actually feels pretty good, so walking feels good. And that, those two things change how you would approach them from a physical therapy standpoint as well. So if you're doing physical therapy for a standard radiculopathy from a disc herniation, you're going to want to do a lot of extension-based exercises. They call them centralization exercises. So you might be in a prone position and then do a press-up where you push up into almost a cobra position. Um, but that's going to cause somebody with spinal stenosis or neuroforaminal stenosis impingement on their nerves, and it'll worsen their symptoms. So in that person, you're going to want to stretch their hip flexors and their uh, latissimus dorsi. You're going to strengthen their glutes and their abdominal muscles and cause a posterior pelvic tilt in order to open up their neuroforamina. So very different approaches in terms of how you would treat it from a physical therapy standpoint and then also what would provoke it. So I think there are some things on this person's history that are still of question. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's continue. The neurosurgeon wasn't convinced that the L5-S1 foramen narrowing was the cause of the pain, and he certainly didn't feel there was any surgical uh, uh, need here. So he suggested doing an epidural injection, and this, this was done. So what does an epidural injection do, and why does injection of steroid in the epidural area provide relief in some cases? So what you're trying to do is reduce irritation of the nerve either through a sort of chemical neutralization, so reducing the inflammatory chemicals in that area, because those inflammatory mediators themselves can cause a chemical radiculitis, so the steroid will help with that. And also by reducing swelling, you can uh, potentially reduce a mass effect in that area. Um, and so that's one of the benefits uh, around um, doing it with somebody who has a fair amount of swelling in the area from an acute injury. So uh, I would say that it's a very commonly used treatment for radiculopathy from a disc herniation also commonly used for neuroforaminal or central canal stenosis, but it's not as permanent a treatment for those because those problems often you're going to try to treat with postural uh, restoration, but the actual stenosis doesn't go away, whereas a disc often will heal. And so you do the epidural, you do your appropriate therapy, your body heals that disc, and you no longer have pressure in that area, so you just likely won't have to have an epidural in the future. All right. Well, let's continue. Unfortunately, the epidural didn't give any benefit. Two months pass. The patient comes back because he's somewhat concerned because uh, he mentions a close member of the family had a myosarcoma of the leg. And hearing that, the orthopedist decided to do an MRI of the right lower extremity. Interesting findings. A tiny hyperintense nodule associated with the right sciatic nerve just proximal to the greater sciatic notch was found, 5 by 7 by 9 millimeters. This was felt to represent a benign nerve sheath tumor. Mild degenerative changes were also noted in the right hip. So could this lesion on the sciatic nerve produce the patient's symptoms, do you think? They can. That certainly is a possibility. I would say that if the patient had no benefit during the anesthetic phase of the epidural, and if it was a transferominal epidural at that L5 level, then that would rule out um, that area, nerve root impingement at L5, as the primary cause of his pain. Because during that local anesthetic phase, the pain should have gone away if that was the cause of the pain. Mm -hmm. 
So now you see that nerve sheath tumor. Well, nerve sheath tumors can, there can be benign tumors that just don't ever cause any symptoms, but they can also cause uh, mass effect and uh, ridiculous symptoms. And it's not going to be easy to, to sort that out on physical examination. Um, you know, you, uh, with EMG, if they had an abnormal EMG, then you would find no abnormalities in the paraspinal muscle regions which would be associated with anything that would be a radiculopathy uh, up higher, um, whereas you might have more abnormalities in the gluteal musculature and, and down the leg. Um, and uh, so the EMG might help sort out where the lesion is, but much more difficult on history and physical examination to localize a lesion in the sciatic nerve at that location versus uh, radiculopathy. Mm -hmm. All right, well... The next thing that was done was a uh, consultation with interventional radiology was ordered for a steroid injection of the uh, lesion on the right sciatic nerve. And the um, radiologist really couldn't see the lesion. He was using ultrasound guidance, uh, so injected some steroid around the area. Unfortunately, no improvement resulted. So the next thing, a different neurosurgeon was consulted about surgical excision of this nerve sheath tumor. And the neurosurgeon was not totally convinced that excision would relieve the symptoms, and he said, this thing is pretty tiny, and it's going to be really tough to find. So the neurosurgeon suggested gabapentin. So do you use gabapentin in radicular pain? Is this useful? Yeah, gabapentin definitely for neuropathic pain is a useful agent. It's not addictive um, or habit-forming. It uh, really has minimal effect in terms of um, negative consequences with your stomach or kidneys or liver, so it's a quite benign medication, and it definitely helps with nerve pain. I mean, multiple studies have shown that, whether it's diabetic peripheral neuropathy or radiculopathy. Um, the main side effect is sleepiness, and so frequently you'll do more of a bedtime dose, but you can do daytime doses as well. Um, and some people get some dizziness with it, and so you have to make sure that people are okay feeling a bit uh, like they're medicated on it, but it can reduce pain. And frankly, for people who are having nerve pain, a lot of times they struggle to sleep. And so giving them a medication that facilitates sleep and reduces their pain is, is kind of a co nice combination. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, gabapentin was tried, and over two months the dose was gradually escalated to the maximum, and unfortunately no, no benefit. So the patient returned. Um, but first... He attended a lecture given by one of his colleagues from Complementary Medicine about the benefits of acupuncture. So he spoke with that colleague regarding acupuncture, and the uh, colleague uh, offered an acupuncture treatment. Tried it. Tiny little needles inserted into the ear resulted in dramatic and complete relief of pain. Unfortunately, for only four hours, pain returned. So that wasn't the answer. Month later, back to the neurosurgeon to reconsider excision of the nerve sheath tumor, a uh, neurosurgeon said, well, let's check the MRI again, see if there's any change in this thing. And there wasn't. The nerve sheath tumor looked unchanged, but now what was identified was some mild hamstring tendinopathy on the right leg. So the surgeon said, we're not going to operate on this, but you may have a, a hamstring tendinopathy. So how does a hamstring tendinopathy present? Well, hamstring tendinopathy is going to tend to be lower than some of the other problems. A lot of times with 
set arthropathy or radiculopathy, you know, usually you'll have some back pain um, and then symptoms radiating down into the leg. With uh, piriformis syndrome, you're going to have buttock pain um, and then radiating down into the leg. Uh, with hamstring tendinopathy, you might have symptoms radiating into the leg. And frankly, because the sciatic nerve goes right next to the hamstring tendons, if you have enough of an inflammatory response in that area or a big tendinopathic tendon that's causing a mass effect against the sciatic nerve, you can get neuropathic pain into the leg, so it can cause sciatica. Um, but the pain will often originate right under the ischial tuberosity, so it'll hurt when you're sitting frequently, particularly on a hard chair. It uh, hurts during the terminal swing phase of gait, so during that eccentric contraction of your hamstring. Um, it'll hurt when you stretch uh, or contract that muscle. It'll hurt when you palpate it directly. There are a lot of different things on physical examination and history that would have uh, suggested if that was your symptomatic problem. Okay. Well, a uh, steroid injection to the right hamstring was uh, performed, and the patient actually did show some improvement. He estimated 30 to 50% improvement. Unfortunately, it only lasted several days. So two months pass, patient returns, no improvement, and it was suggested that they try a platelet-rich plasma injection with the right hamstring. So how does a PRP injection work, and when do you consider those? Well, you know, and we're playing sort of the, the armchair physician right now with the retrospectoscope on, and um, I would say hamstring tendinopathy usually responds to physical therapy. Mm -hmm. And so while I think the injection was worthwhile just to see if uh, it alleviated symptoms, so from a diagnostic standpoint, it would have provided some information, and then hopefully therapeutically it provided some benefit, I would have really focused on physical therapy and done a good, solid, eccentric strengthening program, so a lengthening contraction that stimulates tendon regeneration and increased strength of the tendon so it can tolerate normal daily uh, stress, working on the biomechanics around the hip girdle, making sure there aren't any movement patterns that are contributing to it. So I would have really focused on that. Now, if a steroid injection and physical therapy were not providing benefit, but the local anesthetic phase of that steroid injection uh, alleviated some of the symptoms, so you're pretty confident that this is indeed a hamstring uh, issue, then I think uh, an ultrasound-guided percutaneous needle tenotomy and platelet-rich plasma injection are very reasonable treatment options. And you are right. Um, PRP injection was done, no benefit, and physical therapy for hamstring eccentric training was recommended. And that continued for a few months. Uh, patient returned six months later, no improvement. So where are we at now? We've, we've looked at multiple possible causes for radicular leg pain. Can you think of others that really haven't been thought of yet? I mean, the majority of, of causes of radicular pain we've discussed, um, you know, starting up at the spine, um, you know, uh, spinal stenosis, neurofrominal stenosis, uh, going outside of the spine, you already talked about the nerve sheath tumor. There could be compression of the piriformis muscle. Uh, it could be uh, impinged at the ischiofemoral space uh, or by an enlarged hamstring tendon. 
and then uh, further down, you wouldn't it would be unlikely because the problem you were having pain up in the buttock going down the leg, and so it's unlikely that this is just a leg problem. So I, th I think we've been pretty pretty uh, thorough. The only one I guess of those that we haven't talked about is ischiofemoral impingement. So ischiofemoral impingement involves compression of soft tissues between the lesser trochanter on your femur and the ischial tuberosity. And so that space can be either narrowed because of anatomic factors like a larger um, lesser trochanter or uh, possibly an avulsion fracture of the ischial tuberosity that um, resulted in a large ischial tuberosity. It can be from a large uh, tendinopathic hamstring tendon, but it can also be functional where when you walk, if you have a Trendelenburg walk because of weakness in the hip abductors, then that will cause the, it causes the contralateral pelvis from the stance leg to drop down. And so if you think about it, that adducts your femur towards the pelvis, and that will compress the soft tissues between the femur and ischial tuberosity. So the muscle that lives in that area is your quadratus femoris, but your sciatic nerve is also right there. And so it can cause buttock pain and radicular features in the lower extremity. Well, at this point, I think the orthopedist was out of ideas. So they uh, turned in a pain clinic consultation. And the patient met with the pain clinic anesthesiologist. And initially they said, let's try duloxetine. I presume for the uh, neuropathic pain benefits. But they also said, you know, this sounds a little bit like piriformis syndrome. So they offered to do a piriformis injection and... Following the injection, the patient was completely pain-free and actually remained pain-free thereafter. So if you haven't guessed, this, is, this was actually me. Uh, this was something that went on for almost two years, and uh, I think it just illustrates the variety of things that can cause radicular leg pain that can be very frustrating to treat. And this was my first experience with chronic pain, which... Um, you know, I try to learn something and out of everything that happens, and uh, this is beneficial because I look at patients now who have chronic pain a little bit differently, and uh, it, uh, it, was, it was quite a relief to get this pain gone because uh, dealing with something for that long, it's, it's very frustrating. And I think our patients often have radicular leg pain for uh, extended periods of time as well. Absolutely, and, and you know, some of the things that uh, I think are takeaway points, you know, piriformis syndrome hurts when you push on it. Uh, and to make sure that you do a nice physical examination and push on the areas that might be causing the pain. Um, there are a lot of things that can cause pain radiating to the leg that are not nerve. So whether that is uh, from a muscle-based problem or, frankly, uh, the sacroiliac joint can cause pain radiating all the way down to the foot. That's not the more common uh, distribution, but there are things that are not radicular that can cause uh, pain radiating down into that area. They just won't have associated neurologic symptoms like numbness, tingling, or weakness. And then uh, things that can cause symptoms, um, you know, if, if you're doing your history, physical examination, and diagnostic tests, and it's not really following the pattern that fits with that problem, you know, like for you, the neurofrominal stenosis, and it didn't respond to the treatments in that area, then look for other things. Don't get fixated on something just because you see pathology. So you can have stuff that is asymptomatic. So it's really important to have a broad differential diagnosis and really investigate. 
Yeah, especially with our imaging studies now that are so sensitive, it's just uh, you're, you're never seeing completely normal uh, MRI of the spine. There's always some degree of facet arthritis or foramenal narrowing, and it's hard to know when those are clinically significant. Yeah, agreed. Well, we've been discussing radicular leg pain with Dr. Jonathan Finoff, a physiatrist and sports medicine physician at the Mayo Clinic. John, this has been fun. Thank you for sharing your knowledge with us. Oh, thanks so much for inviting me today. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please subscribe. Stay healthy and see you next week.